Hi, and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. How not so long ago are we now? 1925. That's pretty long ago. Not, not for, for me. You. <laughs> <laughs> for me, sure. <laughs> but not for me. Um, all right. So on October 2nd, 1925, Josephine Baker performed for the first time in La Revue Negra at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées in Paris. She was a renowned dancer, French resistant agent, the first black woman to star in a major motion picture, civil rights activist, and an iconic symbol of the jazz age. Uh, Have you ever heard of her? Yes. And I'm trying to remember <laughs> where, and I feel like it was recent. Oh, you'll figure it out. Okay. You'll figure it out. And you, you, I don't mention why I think you're remembering it, but it might come back to you. Okay. Um, okay. So, Josephine Baker was born on June 3rd, 1906 in St. Louis, Missouri, as Frida Josephine McDonald. Her mother, Carrie McDonald, worked as a laundress and a domestic servant, and her father, Eddie Carson, was a vaudeville drummer. However, there's speculation that Carson might actually not be her father, um, and that her real father was actually a white man from the German family Carrie worked for around the same time that she became pregnant. Twist! Yeah. <clears throat> so we're starting off a fascinating life with a real mystery, which will likely probably always stay a mystery. But there's like, um, when I was doing my research, there was a mention, um, an excerpt from a book where the author talks about like the digging that they did into it. And like her mother, who was a like, fully black woman um was admitted to an exclusively white female hospital when she gave birth and she was there for six weeks so mm. like there's a whole there's like i don't know if it's a conspiracy theory per se but like there's definitely some evidence that it, her father was likely white so Suspicious. take that as you will if anyone really feels like digging through an archive for that information you go at it um, so Josephine grew up poor. Her mother married a kind but perpetually unemployed man named Ar Arthur Martin, and they had three more children. Carrie took in laundry to wash to make ends meet, and at just eight years old, Josephine began working as a live-in domestic for white families in St. Louis. As I'm sure you can probably imagine, the families she worked for weren't always kind, and one woman actually abused her and ended up burning Josephine's hands when she put too much soap in the laundry. Oh. Yeah. By the time she was 12, Josephine had dropped out of school, and at 13, she began working as a waitress at the Old Chauffeur's Club in, at 3133 Pine Street, which is where she met her first husband, Willie Wells, and the marriage only lasted, actually, I think it was a couple of weeks, but it was significantly less than a year. But I feel like it's probably really difficult to make a marriage work at 13. Yeah, you so, know, not great. Maybe not the best time in your life to make, you know, some very grown-up decisions. Anyway. <laughs> so following her divorce from Wells, she found work with a street performance group called the Jones Family Band. This strained her relationship with her mother, who didn't want Josephine to become an entertainer, and she thought that she should be paying more attention to her now second husband, Willie Baker, who she had married in 1921 at the age of 15. Again, I really don't feel like... 15 is even a great age to make a marriage sick. <laughs> yeah, you waited two years, but you really should have waited uh, at least five. Well, I mean, 
my mom got married at 19 and they're still together. So like, yeah, but that's one year more than I just suggested. Five, 15 plus five Thir- is 20, 13. Oh, 18. okay. We're going back to 13. Yeah. She waited two right. years. She should have waited five. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm, I'm caught up now. <laughs> Even then, my God. I mean, still, I mean, everyone has their own level of maturity, but I feel like still too young. Anyway, personal opinions about marriageable age aside, uh, Josephine left Willie Baker when her vaudeville troupe was booked into a New York City venue and divorced him in 1925, but she continued to use his last name professionally because that's when her reputation really started to grow. So she kept the name, even though they divorced. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of uh, can't can't interrupt that kind of thing right off the bat. You lose your whole following. Yeah, exactly. That'd be like if we started just halfway history and like seven episodes in, which is like the magic number for if you stick with a podcast or not, we changed our name and... Yeah, and bailed. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. by then we already had, you know, so much advertising going on. Right, yeah. Um, market that recognizable name. So in New York City during the Harlem Renaissance... Josephine's career began to see some real success. She performed at the Plantation Club and was in the chorus lines of the groundbreaking and hugely successful Broadway reviews Shuffle Along in 1921 and The Chocolate Dandies in 1924. Josephine's part as the pony in the chorus lines was particularly special. Her act was to perform in a comedic manner as if she couldn't remember the dance at all until the encore at which she would perform it perfectly and then make it even harder. Oh. Yeah, so it was like a twist. <laughs> Lots of twists in this So one. many twists, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just going to get better. <laughs> I'm actually very excited about this topic. Okay. Yeah. So she was billed at the time as, quote, the highest paid chorus girl in vaudeville. So clearly she was, you know, making a name for herself. And it was through vaudeville and chorus girl gigs that she got the opportunity to tour in Paris. So Josephine sailed to Paris and opened La Revue Negra on October 2nd, 1925. Cough, th- cough. Yeah, I think I remember now. Uh, oh, maybe, yeah? <laughs> Lovecraft Country? Yes. Yes. Yep, 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 yep. Um, but that's our event. <laughs> oh, over there. So, yes, we've, we've hit it. I thought um, the cough, cough was for me that I should have figured it out by then. No, because I don't mention that until later. But oh, okay. anyway. I thought you said you didn't mention it. Oh, gosh. No, I don't think I actually mention it, but mm-hmm. I figured you'd remember it later, yep. but it's fine. Anyway, so she opened La Revue Negra um, at age 19 and began building a name for herself in Paris. She became an instant success for her erotic dancing and appealing, uh, <laughs> appealing, <laughs> you don't know why that's funny, but you're going to nope. find out real soon, appearing almost nude on stage. Ah, that is appealing. Well, it gets better. Uh, She had a brief but successful tour in Europe and then returned to Paris in 1926 to star in the Follies Bergère, uh, setting the standard for her future acts. In this act, Josephine performed the Dance dance Sauvage, basically savage dance, um, wearing a costume consisting of a skirt made of a string of artificial bananas and a beaded necklace. Appealing. Oh, Jesus, (laughs) Kylie. I didn't mean to do it, but it's really funny. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay. So the International Exhibition of Modern Decorative and Industrial Arts 
um, one of the world's fairs, was held in Paris in 1925 and had highlighted the new style, uh, modern style of architecture, interior decoration, furniture, glass, jewelry, and other decorative arts, um, and is more commonly known as Art Deco, which is like that quintessential 1920s look. Um, But it had also inspired a renewal of interest in non-Western forms of art, including African. And Josephine used this to her advantage, and her costume became an iconic image and a symbol of the Jazz Age and the 1920s. In later shows in Paris, she was often accompanied on stage by her pet cheetah, Chiquita, who was adorned with a diamond collar. The cheetah frequently escaped into the orchestra pit, where it terrorized the musicians, adding another element of excitement to the show. (laughs) Yes, I would want to see that. (laughs) I really snickered a lot at that part when I read it. (laughs) Chaos is fun. pretty much. Um, And this is where I tell Jonathan the realization I had the other day, but wouldn't tell you. Oh, you know, in the animated musical Anastasia, there's a song, Paris Holds the Key to Your Heart, that yeah. Bernadette Peters' character Sophie sings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, during that song, a woman in a purple unitard with a skirt made of bananas and a cheetah on a leash walks by and checks out the painting of a street artist. Oh. That was so- Josephine Baker. Like, an uh, like an animated one. An animated yeah, Josephine yeah, yeah. Baker. It's interesting that they put her in just, like, as a background person. Well, I mean, like... It follows her and the cheetah as they walk past and stuff. Yeah. Um, but sh- it made me laugh when I realized that she has a purple unitard on because she couldn't be naked in a children's movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, I found that very funny. Anyway, after a while, Josephine was the most successful American entertainer working in France. She was celebrated by artists and intellectuals of the era who variously dubbed her the Black Venus, the Black Pearl, the Bronze Venus, and the Creole Goddess. Ernest Hemingway, who spent hours talking with her in Paris bars, called her, quote, the most sensational woman anyone ever saw, and Picasso drew paintings depicting her alluring beauty. She also starred in three films which found success in Europe, the silent film Siren of the Tropics in 1927, Zuzu in 1934, and Princess Tam Tam in 1935. All very vaguely racist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, continue. She was Uh, making it work for her. Yep. That's all that mattered, making that money. First black woman to star in a major motion picture. That's right. In 1934, she took the lead in a revival of Jacques Offenbach's opera La Creole, which premiered in December of that year for a six-month run at the Theatre Margny on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. In the words of Shirley Bassey, who has cited Josephine as her primary influence, quote, she went from a petite danse sauvage with a decent voice to la grande diva magnifique. I swear in all my life I have never seen and probably never shall see again such a spectacular singer and performer. Um, And for anyone who might be wondering who Shirley Bassey is, she recorded the theme songs for the James Bond films Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, and Moonraker. Oh, cool. So despite her popularity in France, Josephine never attained the equivalent reputation in America. Her star turn in a 1936 revival of Ziegfeld Follies on Broadway generated less than impressive box office numbers, and later in the run, she was replaced by Gypsy Rose Lee, who was the inspiration for the musical Gypsy, in case anyone was wondering. So Josephine returned to Paris, married a French industrialist Jean Lyon, 
and became a French citizen. She wasn't just a performer, however. In September of 1939, when France declared war on Germany in response to the invasion of Poland, she was recruited by the Deuxième Bureau, which was French military intelligence, as an honorable correspondent. Honestly, she probably would have sought out the resistance even if they hadn't come to her. As early as 1928, Josephine had experienced firsthand the racism and fanaticism Nazi Germany influenced. In 1928, she had departed for a European tour with the first stop in Vienna. She hadn't been aware of how much political unrest had actually been building in the region. And by that point, Adolf Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf, had popularized racist ideologies that spread throughout the region. And before Josephine had even arrived in the city, posters went up that denigrated her performance and called her a black devil. Jeez. Yeah. So as she rode in a carriage to her hotel, protesters lined the streets. Josephine later said the scene reminded her of the race riots that shook her community when she was a child. Josephine embodied pretty much everything that Hitler and the Nazis despised. She was a successful black woman in an interracial marriage with a Jewish man who was also openly bisexual and had multiple long-term semi-public relationships with other women. Wow. Yep. Really hit all the checkboxes there. Yes. So when she was approached by Jacques Abti, the head of French counter-military intelligence, about joining the resistance, she reportedly replied, quote, France made me what I am. I will be grateful forever. The people of Paris have given me everything. I am ready, Captain, to give them my life. You can use me as you wish. Nice. So just jumped right in. So Josephine was pretty much ideal for this position, using her celebrity status to move easily between countries and offered her enhanced protection. She collected information about German troop locations from officials that she met at parties, particularly gatherings at embassies and ministries. Her cafe society fame enabled her to rub shoulders with those in the know, from high-ranking Japanese officials to Italian bureaucrats, and to report back what she heard. When the Germans invaded France, she left Paris and went to her, her, her home in the Dordogne department in the south of France, where she housed people who were eager to help the f- free French effort led by Charles de Gaulle and supplied them with visas. As an entertainer, Josephine had the perfect excuse for moving around Europe, visiting nu- neutral locations like Portugal, as well as some in South America. And she carried information for transmission to England about airfields, harbors, and German troop concentrations in the west of France. These notes were written in invisible ink on her sheet music. Oh, that's so really very cool. Very sneaky, yeah. yeah. In 1941, Josephine and her entourage traveled to the French colonies in North Africa, ostensibly for her health, which was true. She was recovering from pneumonia at the time. But the real reason was further resistance work. Or maybe to get away from her recently divorced third husband. Uh, Who knows? From her base in Morocco, she made trips to Spain and pinned notes with the information she gathered inside of her underwear. And she counted on her celebrity status to avoid a strip search. So, like, that's pretty cunning. She then began touring to entertain British, French, and American soldiers in North Africa and charged no admission. After the war, she received... the Croix de Guerre, and the Rosette de la Résistance. She was made a chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur by General Charles de Gaulle, which is, like, pretty much the highest honor civilians can get um, in France, so... Okay, cool. Yeah. Josephine triumphantly returned to the Follies Bergère in 1949, 
Recognition of her heroics during the war bolstered her reputation and allowed her to take on more substantive roles, unafraid to take on serious music or subject matter. The engagement was a rousing success and reestablished Josephine as one of Paris's preeminent entertainers. In 1951, she was invited back to the U.S. for an engagement at a nightclub in Miami. The return home forced her to confront segregation and discrimination that she had not experienced since she was a child in St. Louis. Or, you know, in Nazi Germany. She often refused to perform to segregated audiences, which usually forced club owners to integrate for her shows. um, She even won a public battle over desegregating an audience at her sold-out run in Miami. So, making some civil rights waves, too. She followed this triumph up with a national tour. Rave reviews and enthusiastic audiences accompanied her everywhere, climaxed by a parade in front of 100,000 people in Harlem in honor of her new title, NAACP's Woman of the Year. Nice. Yeah. Josephine's refusal to perform for segregated audiences helped to integrate live entertainment shows in Las Vegas as well. She also wrote articles about segregation in the U.S., began traveling more in the South, and gave a talk at Fisk University, a historically black college in Nashville, Tennessee, on France, North Africa, and the equality of the races in France. So, like, not about entertainment, but purely about equality. Of course, her outspoken opposition to segregation brought plenty of threats from the KKK, but Josephine publicly proclaimed that they couldn't scare her. Her reputation as a crusader grew to such an extent that the NAACP had Sunday, May 20th, 1951, declared Josephine Baker Day. Cool. Which is nice, yeah. She was presented with life membership with the NAACP by Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Ralph Bunch. She made pub... Public her support of Willie McGee, who was a black man in Mississippi who was convicted of raping a white woman in 1945 on the basis of some pretty dubious evidence and was sentenced to death. Unfortunately, though, as a decorated war hero who was bolstered by the racial equality she experienced in Europe, Josephine became increasingly regarded as controversial. Some black people even began to shun her, fearing that her outspokenness and racy reputation from her earlier years might hurt their cause. Ah. Yeah. In 1963, Josephine spoke at the March on Washington at the side of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and was the only official female speaker. Not everyone involved wanted Baker present at the march, um, and some thought her time overseas had made her a woman of France rather than of America, and one who was disconnected from the civil rights issues going on in America. But in her powerful speech, one of the things she notably said was, quote, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know, I open my big mouth and then look out, because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. That's pretty convincing. I like it. (laughs) I was like, that's a good point. Like, she's performed and she's, like, socialized with like super important political people across the world. And yet one of the things that happened in America to her was she went to get a cup of coffee in a hotel and they kicked her out because she was black. Land of the free. Yikes. So now I want to take a look at more of her personal life. So despite her four marriages, Josephine was actually bisexual, as I briefly mentioned earlier. During her time in the Harlem Renaissance um, arts community, one of her relationships was with blues singer Clara Smith. In 1925, she also had an extramarital relationship with the Belgian novelist George Simenon. 
After her 14-year marriage to her fourth husband, Joe Bullion, she was involved for a time with the artist Robert Brady, but they never married. Um, And over the years, Josephine was involved in sexual liaisons, if not outright relationships, with Ada Bricktop-Smith, who was another black vaudevillian and nightclub owner in France, the French novelist Colette, and possibly Frida Kahlo. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Interestingly, Josephine also adopted 12 children over the years, dubbing them the Rainbow Tribe. She wanted to prove that, quote, children of different ethnicities and religions could still be brothers. Um, And she often took the children with her cross-country and when they were at the Chateau de Miland, which was her castle. Nice. She had a castle. Nice. Uh, she arranged tours so vis- visitors could walk the grounds and see how natural and happy the children were. Her estate featured hotels, a farm, rides, and the children singing and dancing for the audience. What's funny is when Kylie was researching this, at one point I heard her go, an 11th kid? And now I'm hearing <laughs> that there were 12. <laughs> I actually think there might have been 13. Oh, But my different goodness. sources said 12 and other sources said 13. So I just went conservatively. Yep. <laughs> they were all adopted, though. I don't... I mean, like, that's still a lot of kids to, like, keep track of. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so she charged a mission for visitors to enter and partake in the activities, some of which included just watching the children play together. <laughs> nice. <laughs> she also raised them as different religions to further her model for the world. Um, in one instance, she took two children from Algeria and raised one Muslim and the other Catholic. So a bit of a social experimentation going on, the whole nature versus nurture thing. Um, unfortunately, Josephine faced financial hardships later in life, losing her castle in 1968 due to unpaid debts. Yeah, not great. Uh, thankfully, though, her friend, Princess Grace of Monaco... Yes, that Princess Grace of Monaco um, was able to offer her an apartment. Just, you know, here, have an apartment. Live here. Not quite the same as a castle, but I imagine that (laughs) apartment was a little more lavish than a general apartment we know of today. I would assume that if a princess gives you an apartment, it's probably a really nice apartment. Yeah. (laughs) Considering she also had 12 children with her. Still not a replacement for a castle, but... Fair, yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, Josephine returned to the stage at the Olympia in Paris that same year. She played Carnegie Hall in New York in 1973, um, where I actually read that she it was sold out. She had a full standing ovation, and it actually brought her to tears on stage because the last time she had performed in the U.S., it had been, like, bad. Yeah. So, like, the fact that she now had, like, full standing ovation, like, recognition from where she was born was really, you know, touching. That's nice. Yeah. Um, And she also performed at the Royal Variety Performance at the London Palladium in 1974. So on April 8th, 1975, she starred in a retrospective review at the Bobino in Paris. Josephine a Bobino, 1975, was the title of it. Josephine at Bobino. Are you just saying that every time so that our dog's ears goes up every time you say it? A little bit. It was kind of entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which celebrated her 50 years in show business. It was financed notably by Prince Rainier, Princess Grace, and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Um, And it opened to rave reviews. Demand for seating was so high that fold-out chairs had to be added to accommodate extra spectators. The opening night audience 
reportedly includes Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger, Shirley Bassey, as mentioned earlier, Diana Ross, and Liza Minnelli. Oh, wow. So quite the audience. Now, to stay true to myself, I do have to inform you that this would be her last performance. Oh, there it is. Yep. Well, I can't talk about a person I and know, not, I'm you know, kidding. This go is just the like whole a general way. person thing. I know. Yeah, it's yeah. not like a specific <laughs> this one thing. Uh, so four days after her hit opening, Josephine Baker was found lying peacefully in her bed, surrounded by newspapers with the glowing reviews from her performance. Uh, she had fallen into a coma after suffering a cerebral hemorrhage. And she died on April 12th, 1975, at the age of 68. On the day of her funeral, more than 20,000 people lined the streets of Paris to witness the procession, and the French government honored her with a 21-gun salute, making Josephine Baker the first American woman in history to be buried in France with military honors. Wow. Yeah. She was interred at Monaco's uh, Cimetière de Monaco. Um, so if anyone wants to go looking for her gravesite, that's where to look. Josephine left behind an impressive legacy. Writing in the online BBC magazine in late 2014, Darren Royston, historical dance teacher at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, credited Josephine Baker with being the Beyonce of her day and bringing the Charleston to Britain. I believe it. So, so like, pretty impressive. Um, on Theatre Row, 42nd Street, New York City, there's a restaurant named Shay Josephine that is run by two of her sons and celebrates her life and work. Oh, that's very yeah. cool. Um, there's a place Josephine Baker in Montparnasse quarter of Paris was named for her. And the St. Louis Channing Avenue was renamed Josephine Baker Boulevard. She was inducted into the St. Louis Walk of Fame, the Hall of Famous Missourians, and the Legacy Walk in Chicago, Illinois. Additionally, her castle Chateau de Milande is open to the public and displays her stage outfits, including her iconic banana skirt. Which there are apparently multiple of. It wasn't just one. She had numerous. I, I have a feeling that that's the case <laughs> for most stage performers. You don't have yeah. the one suit. Yeah. Especially, you know, as active as her performances were. I'd, right. I'd imagine that you wouldn't want just one of them. Yeah. So those are on display at her um, castle home, um, as well as many family photographs, documents, and her Legion of Honor medal. Josephine's influence is still felt today, having inspired not only Shirley Bassey to, you know, James Bond songs, <laughs> there we go, uh, but numerous other celebrities and non-celebrities. In a 2003 interview with USA Today, Angelina Jolie cited her as, quote, a model for the multiracial, multinational family she was beginning to create through adoption. And Beyonce performed Josephine's Banana Dance at the Fashion Rocks concert at Radio City Music Hall in September of 2016. Oh, fun. Yeah. For the 110th anniversary of her birth, Vogue described how her 1926 dance sauvage in her famous banana skirt, quote, brilliantly manipulated the white male imagination and radically redefined notions of race and gender through style and performance in a way that continues to echo throughout fashion and music today from Prada to Beyonce. Um, and in a, August of 2019, Josephine was one of the honorees inducted into the Rainbow Honor Walk, a walk of fame in San Francisco's Castro neighborhood, noting LGBTQ people who have, quote, made significant contributions in their fields. I'd agree that she's one of them. Yep. Definitely, I definitely. Too. And I honestly can't put it any better. So that's the story of Josephine Baker. Very cool. A woman who made significant contributions in her field and not just her field, to across the many. world. Yeah, a exactly. Little bit. Yeah. 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 She's extremely impressive. 
spying on Nazis. I know. Literally every checkbox in their hatred book. My yeah. God. Pretty much just like, not even like sneaking, like not even like stealthy. Just no, like, she was just going around as herself. Just right. like, who can tell me what? Right. Like no assumed identities, like, you know, no hiding, but like just straight up, oh, I'm Josephine Baker. And now I'm just going to leak everything you told me to the British. Yeah. I'm going to go get you <laughs> drunk in a bar and... Yeah. See what you tell me, because I'm famous and you yep. people love my performances. Yeah, it's I'm extremely impressed by her. Yeah. But yes, she is in Lovecraft Country. Yes. And by she I mean an actress portraying her, but anyway. Correct. Yeah. We won't say too much more about that in case people haven't watched it. It's very cool. You should go watch it. It's really good, yeah. I, I need to find a time to talk about uh Lovecraft on this show just specifically to get to Lovecraft Country and other um black media yeah because uh lovecraft as i'm sure many people know was a giant racist Mm -hmm. Um, but he wrote stories that very um very particularly resonate with oppressed people yeah and he wrote he he inadvertently wrote a lot about oppression without knowing it (laughs) Um, and lovecraft country is a very cool take on that it's very good yeah cool so, time for the call to action? Call to action. Awesome. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. And you can find our website at www.halfwit-history.com. And if you'd like to support us in what we do and everything, um, I know it's tough because, you know, month nine or so of quarantine <laughs> <Pandemic>. now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but if, if you happen to have some money to support us, uh, you can go to ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com forward slash halfwit history. Um, and if anyone wants to, you know, reach out, uh, get in touch with us, have any suggestions or comments or anything like that, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Um, and you can reach us at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Correct. That was a question, but it was right. Kylie doesn't normally say the emails and stuff like no, that. No, I so don't. <laughs> I forgot it, and she took up the mantle for me. Thank you, Kylie. I'm on top of it. That's right. Our nope, not I. Almost did my my own cardinal sin there of forgetting Mister the Fisherman and thanking him for the use of our theme song, "Another Day." And you can find. Don't point down, <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> Making fun of me. And, I am currently pointing down. I know. (laughs) You're the worst. You can find him down in our show notes. He has a link to his SoundCloud, and Kylie's just frantically pointing at the ground because she's making fun of my hand motions when I do the call to action. Every time you point down. (laughs) It's not below me. It's not in our basement. I know, but you do it anyway. Probably when you're listening to this, it's not even physically located down like if you're listening on our buzzsprout site yes but i'm not sure about other stuff like i know oh, that's uh, a good point i know like on podcast addict it's actually to the right like you swipe to the right to get to show notes well <laughs> anyways on for fun facts fun facts all right i've got one since you did all the talking while you get yours ready so much talking Mine was a doozy because I was going to bring up something else that is near and dear to my heart, but then I stumbled across this sentence, which is on October 2nd of 1851, the Pasolalinic Sympathetic Compass, I'm going to start that over, (laughs) on October 2nd, 1851, the Pasolalinic sympathetic compass is um, demonstrated, and 
proven to be fake. And for those who do not know what that crazy word pasolinic sympathetic is, is it's when snails have sex and they create a permanent telepathic bond. <laughs> but it was proven fake, so... <laughs> But yeah, what a wild sentence. <laughs> yeah. Yup. So what's your fun fact other than uh, snail sex telepathy? I mean, clearly nothing as good as snail sex telepathy. That's the name of a band now. Someone if it's is, not, it needs to be. Someone listening right now probably has some sort of mus- music inclination and has now named their band Snail Sex Telepathy. Yeah. Um, all right. On... September 29th, 1972, Robert McNamara, former U.S. Secretary of Defense, is almost thrown overboard on a ferry by an artist wanting to confront him on his role in escalating U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. No charges were pressed. Good. (laughs) I just am envisioning Robert McNamara getting tossed over a ferry. (laughs) That's all we need. That's all we need in life. Well, as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye bye.